Father, we are opening up our Bibles, knowing that, Lord, it is here that we, we hear from you. And Father, we also know that we need your Spirit to enlighten us, to empower us, to hear it, to receive it. So we ask, Father, for your Spirit to come and just to rest on us, Lord, to open up our, our minds and hearts, that we would see Christ, that we would see ourselves rightly, that we would come to Christ finding in him this morning what we what we need our our hope our salvation father use me in just my preparation this week lord may may the words that come out of my mouth not only be pleasing unto you but edifying to the body of christ lord may we be built up as we study the word of god this morning we pray those things in jesus name amen i was thinking about uh as i was praying just now we need the Spirit to uh, illuminate us, to help us understand the Word. We know that. The Spirit does reveal truth to God's people. And uh, this morning, I did something I don't often do, but I, was, I, I actually was reading articles, news articles this morning. Um, and I try not to do that on Sunday mornings, <laughs> trying to get stuff in my head that shouldn't be in my head. But I was reading, this, something caught my attention this morning, and I, so I read it, and it was basically this, um, this article saying, uh, I think the title was something like things that Jesus said that we always get wrong. And, uh, this professor of New Testament uh, religious studies at a, a major university was writing this to basically highlight some of the parables of Jesus and say that, you know, here's how you've often heard them. You've probably heard them wrong. Here's what they really mean. And as I was reading through the article, every single parable highlighting, I was going, no, she got it wrong. I mean, it was way off. It wasn't even close. And then at the end of the article, she says, I'm not a Christian, um, but I hope you all, you know, could learn to see your Bibles differently. And I thought, no wonder you got it wrong. I mean, this, we need the Spirit to illuminate. The Word of God doesn't make sense to us apart from the Spirit's leading. Um, and why a, Christ, a non-Christian is teaching New Testament studies, I have no idea. But anyway, yeah, we need the Spirit. <laughs> so may He come and, and help us this morning. First uh, John, we are, uh, we're right kind of near the middle of the book at this point, and um, I know I haven't been up here for a couple of weeks to teach. Let me, let me uh, recap where we've been, just to kind of set the scene a little bit. Just real nutshell what this book is about. The Apostle John, who is like Doris in his 80s when he's writing this letter, uh, it's, he's the last living apostle at this point, and he's writing to the churches to let them know, hey, you know, we're 50-some years, 60 years beyond the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and as the church is beginning to get kind of established and comfortable, should I switch to this again? I know last week this didn't work so good. As the church is getting established and comfortable, false teachers are starting to come in and mess up the gospel. They're getting the gospel wrong. They're teaching things that Jesus didn't teach and that the apostles didn't teach. And so John is writing to these churches to correct that and say, hey, you've been, you've been under this teaching. Let me remind you of what you have received. And, and essentially, here's what you received. is Jesus Christ is the Son of God 
who came in the flesh. He recaps all of what the gospel is about, why it's so important for them to to hear directly the words of Jesus and not be led astray by false teachers. And so as he's writing, he's kind of giving this test for them, uh, a test for themselves that they can say, are we believing right doctrine? Are we really following Jesus as Jesus has revealed himself to us through the teaching of the apostles? And last week and the week before, you started to get some warnings uh, that, again, these antichrists, these false teachers would be coming. And so John is helping the church to, to look out for what that teaching is going to be represented by. And it's primarily going to be a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ, a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, look, be on the lookout for these things. But then as he finishes chapter uh, 2, he says there's one other thing that we need to be on the lookout for. And it's that Jesus is coming back. And so we're going to spend some time this morning talking about that. Jesus coming back and what the implications for his coming back are for the church. So I've titled the message this morning simply that, Confidence in the second coming of Christ. Again, he's trying to, to build up the church to have some assurances in their faith, and he wants them to be confident when that day comes. So let's talk about this first point, and just simply it is this. Jesus is coming back, and at any moment, really, right? Look again at verse 28 of chapter 2. He says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming when he appears there and at his coming there refer to the second coming of jesus christ of course jesus arrived two thousand years ago he came in the flesh that's a big part of what john began teaching here in the book he came as the god man and he promised after his death and resurrection as he was ascending back into heaven to be at the father's side he promised his disciples, that he would indeed one day come come back. And he even began to give that promise to them before his death. Remember, they were sitting around the table at the Last Supper, and he said this to them in John 14. He said, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. As I was studying this this week, it dawned on me that we talk regularly, I think, at Edgewater about the fact that Jesus is coming back. It's our great hope, right? But I don't think that I've had opportunity in the seven years that I've been here to actually teach on the specifics of his return. I was looking over the books that we've studied over the seven years that I've been primarily the preaching pastor here. And I thought, I don't think we've, we've really got into the nuts and bolts of the second coming. And so I'm excited to be able to do that a little bit here. We have opportunity to talk about what he's going to do. Uh, so let's talk about it. Let's, let's look at what, again, Jesus said. I said that right as he was ascending back to the Father, he gave these promises back to his disciples that he would be coming back for them. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. But Acts chapter 1, verse 6 says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now again, they've, they've now seen the resurrected Jesus 
He's spending time with his disciples and they're thinking, maybe this is the moment we've been waiting for, Jesus. Now the kingdom will be inaugurated. You've died. You've come back. So they said, is this the time? And he said this, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, he's saying it's not quite yet. There's still work to be done. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Two angels stood by them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is actually one of my, my favorite scenes from a comedy standpoint in the Bible. Right? Jesus is, is, is elevating, ascending right in front of their eyes, right? And they're, they're just watching him go to the clouds. And when the angels come and ask him, why are you looking up? I'm thinking if I was there, I would turn to the angels and be like, are you kidding me? Dude, the guy just elevated. He's, he, look, he's going into the sky. What would you be looking at? Right? That's a funny question to me. But the, the point that the angels are making is, look, you've got work to do. Go do it. He'll come back that same way. Just as you saw him go, floating up, he's going to come floating back down. In 1 John 1.28, John uses the word appears, and the Greek word is, is, a, is a, a epiphania or epiphania, which is the word that we get epiphany from. And so you get this idea there that it doesn't just reflect the fact that he is going to return, but it's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. Again, that just descent, that we're just, everybody's going to see it and it's going to happen very quickly. It's going to happen imminently and it'll be like in the blink of an eye. And in fact, that's exactly what the Scriptures tell us. Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, what, what Matthew's saying there is, Jesus is saying there, Matthew's quoting him, is that it's going to be the speed of light. Right? The sun comes up, boom, light flies from east to west. That's what it'll be like at His return. Matthew chapter 24 is a great chapter to look at. Jesus begins to speak a lot about those last moments uh, before his return. And he says these things, verses 36 through 44. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So again, here's that unexpected nature of it. People are going to be marrying and they're going to be doing their normal activities. They're going to be eating and drinking like everything is just going on as it was yesterday, but suddenly something different is going to happen. It's going to come upon us very suddenly. Verse 40, he says, Then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. 
For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. That's pretty clear, right? It's going to happen quickly and suddenly and at a time when nobody knows. Jesus is saying, I don't even know, which is amazing to me. Only the Father knows that day and that time. This appearing of Jesus back in 1 John here also denotes the visibility of that return. Again, just like they saw Him ascend, they're going to see Him descend, but it's not just going to be some who see it. Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so, Amen. Now you can, you're already beginning to hear in the passages that I've read to you, not only the eminence of His return and the sudden nature of it, the unexpected nature of it, but there's a, there's a sense of warning in these passages too, right? There's a sense of dread upon those who have reason to fear judgment. And John is going to pick up on that. He says, look, Jesus is coming. And, and when He does, nobody's going to expect it. But everybody's going to see it. And it's not going to be like the first coming. The first time Jesus came, He came as a baby. This time He's coming as a king. The first time Jesus came, He came to serve. This time He's coming to judge. The first time he rode a donkey into Jerusalem, this time, the second time, he'll be riding a white horse dressed in battle gear. There's a sword that's going to be coming out of his mouth. There will be blood dripping from his robe. This is not the gentle appearing of a baby in a manger. This is the return of a victorious king. The word translated as coming here in verse 28 of 1 John 2 is uh, perusia. You've probably heard that word before. Maybe in a horror movie title, right? Um, it was used to describe the arrival of a, of a monarch. It was used to describe a glorious event. It's pomp and it's circumstance. It's, it's an inaugural parade. It's a victory parade. We can read in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, more about that moment. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This event is incredibly huge. 
moment. It's an incredibly huge deal. It's the culmination of all of human history. The Bible calls it the last day. Also, it's called the great day. There have been hymn writers who have called it, Oh, glorious day, because when this day comes, when Jesus returns, the dead will rise. The church will be caught up into the air with Him. The world will be judged. Satan and sin will be destroyed. And the heavenly kingdom, the new earth, will be inaugurated. The marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. And we will be, those of us who are believers in Christ, who are His children, we will be with Him in the presence of God forever. He will be our God. We will be His people. That was the, the great promise that God made to His children, right? I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And when this day comes, every promise of the Word will be fulfilled. What a great day. And so John wants us simply to know, listen, that day's coming. It's coming. And it could happen at any moment. So when you say that, it sort of begs the question then of verse 28, how will you react? When that happens, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Let's look at it again, because it's an important thing. It's an important question for us to ask. When he appears, we may either have confidence or we're going to shrink from him in shame. Two reactions to his coming. Confidence, which we'll talk about here a little more in detail, but it goes back to what, what Andy began to speak of already, this, this, this word abiding in him. Those who are abiding in him, who are not relying on self but are trusting in him, they'll have confidence when that happens. But those who are not abiding in Him, we can assume then a self-reliance, an unrighteousness. They're going to shrink in shame. That word shame is a, is a controversial word, isn't it? A lot, of, a lot of moderns like us don't like the word. I, I've heard something on several occasions recently, like Facebook posts or uh, even, even messages that I've listened to uh, that goes something like this. It'll say, guilt equals, I made a mistake. Shame equals, I am a mistake. You ever seen something like that? Guilt, I made a mistake. Shame, I am a mistake. And the conclusion is that shame is a bad word and should never be applied to human beings uh, because you're not a mistake. Now, I understand the intent behind that comparison, and I understand the, the good in that intent, but I, I have to say I strongly dislike that whole thing. Guilt, I made a mistake. Shame, I am a mistake. And I, I dislike it because this, there's no gospel in it. There's no gospel in it. A, a gospel-focused way of giving that comparison would look more like this. Guilt equals I have sinned. I made a mistake, right? I have done more than that, though. I've sinned against a holy God. Shame, then, is the recognition that I am, I am a sinner. 
But here's the good news of the gospel that we have to add to that. Gospel equals Christ took my shame. Right? Yeah, I'm guilty. I've sinned. I'm, sh- I ought to be shameful. I am a sinner. That's, that's what I am. That's why I sinned. But gospel is Christ took my shame. He died to pay my debt. So now I can repent. I can turn from that sin and trust in him for freedom. In other words, shame is a necessary component to faith. We shouldn't run from the word shame. We actually have to kind of evaluate it for what it is. It's a necessary component of faith. Without shame, I won't see my need for salvation, right? If I don't recognize that I'm a sinner, I don't think I need a Savior. And without a need, I'll never repent and trust in Christ for that salvation. So here John's saying, look, Shame is, is, a, is a real reaction, and in, in this sense, it's, it's an appropriate one. It's an appropriate response to the coming of the king when you have lived your life in rebellion and rejection to his kingdom and his position as king. Mark 8.38, Jesus said this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying that that great day comes. Some of you who have been ashamed of me now, you'll I'll be ashamed of you then, and you'll feel that shame too, right? Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That right there, that depiction in Revelation is what John's talking about. That's the shrinking back. People are going to do this. Have you ever gotten out of the shower? Like right after you got out of the shower and your doorbell rings? Right? Maybe you're just getting that towel on and bing bong! Oh no! Right? Panic sets in, right? Uh, you maybe call out, who's there? And whoever responds is, is a friend, so you know, oh, I can't ignore him. I can't leave him outside in the cold. But I'm not dressed. Maybe, maybe the house is messy, right? You're just, you're not really prepared yet for the day. And so you're totally unprepared to receive them. And you have that moment of what? That's what we'd call being surprised, right? Now I want you to imagine that it's not really a friend of yours at the door, but it's the police. And your house isn't just messy. It's messy because you have 400 pounds of an illegal substance in your living room. (laughs) Now, that's not just surprise, right? That's panic. Now, imagine that there's not just an illegal substance in your living room, but there's pictures of all the people that you hate on your wall with big red X's over their faces. There are, there's a stack of journals that's opened on your coffee table with all of your darkest secrets written in them. Your TV's on, and what's playing on the TV is that home video 
of the spring break trip you took where you partied a little too hard, maybe made yourself a little too easy. All that's going on, and, and guess what? It's not really the police at the door. It's Jesus. The real you has just been exposed. That's not just surprise, right? That's not just even panic. That's shame. That's shame. And John's saying, look, for the person who's not abiding in Christ when He comes, for anyone who's not abiding in Christ when He comes, all three of these things will be experienced in that one awful moment. Surprise, panic, shame. Why? Because again, Jesus isn't coming as a guest. He's coming as a judge. And He doesn't even have to come in and examine all that evidence that I just described in your living room because He already knows it. He doesn't just know that. He knows more. He knows everything. Not just your deeds, but your thoughts, your attitudes, your intentions. And in that moment, you'll be very aware that all of that has been exposed and that it all will make an airtight case against you, right? That's what John's warning. Look, for some of us, this imminent return is going to bring that moment. Now you might ask, well, is it possible for a Christian to be ashamed at Jesus' coming? Or is he just talking about non-believers here? It's a good question. Well, actually, we could look to Scripture and, and, and get some answer on that. And I think what Scripture says is it is possible for a Christian to be ashamed. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, and Paul's talking about Christians here. He says, each one's work will become manifested for the day, capital D, day, will disclose. He's talking about this same day. When Jesus comes, that, that great, glorious day, everybody's work will become manifested because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now listen to this. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's talking about Christians, right? So there's a, there's a warning there for us as believers. Like We should live with the motivation that Jesus is coming anytime. And what will you be doing when He arrives? Will, will you be ashamed? Will you have works burnt up? Now say, having said that, I do believe that John is mostly concerned here with non-Christians. And remember, he's, he's warning the churches, the people in the churches. He's warning us as we read this. Look, examine your own belief. Examine your own life to see, are you truly in Christ or have you been deceived by false teaching? Do you really understand the Gospel? Are you really following after Jesus? Or are you deceived by false teachers who are denying Christ with religious trappings and decorations? John wants you to have confidence when Jesus comes. Not to shrink back. There's a warning there, but his desire here is that we would have confidence. And so here's 
how. Here's what he says. Here's how. He says, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Now, I know Andy talked about that over the last couple weeks, this definition of abiding. It's this idea of staying power, right? It's this idea of remaining in what you are in. Remaining in that trust in Christ. Remaining in that belief. That regardless of what your circumstances may be around you, you're remaining as you were. Abiding in Christ. And I think what John is saying here is, remember the Gospel? We're at the end of chapter 2. Let's, let's not get too far down the road. Just look back to the beginning of chapter 2. Those first six verses of chapter 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't, don't be ashamed. Don't get caught up in the trappings of sin. But if anyone does sin, and this is again true for Christians, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way that He walked. So again, he's saying, look, there's this warning. There's, there's going to be shame for those who are caught off guard and who have been walking in unrighteousness. But, but for those who will rejoice at that day, it's because you've abided in Him. And what does it mean to abide in Him? It's to remember first and foremost that you know what? You're a sinner whom God has saved. That Jesus Christ is the propitiation of your sin. Abide in the truth of that fact. Christ died for you. And the way that you know that His death counts for you, that your faith is genuine in Him, is yes, it's going to change the way you live. So evaluate the way you're living. You shouldn't be living in a way that would cause you to be ashamed. But the point isn't that you earn your way into that position of unashamedness. It's that you've been given it by Christ's death on your behalf. He died for you. Abide in that truth. Remember that fact. Cling to the Gospel. And then John introduces a new concept here that will carry forward significantly throughout the rest of the letter. We've touched on it already a little bit today. We'll continue to touch on it again. But it's this idea of our sonship, our daughterhood (laughs) under the Father in Christ. He calls his audience again here little children. Did you catch that? He's used that before. He starts this section off with little children. But... It's a little different this time. Because what he's been doing up to this point is when he says little children or dear children as he's writing to the church, he's sort of claiming them as his own. Like he's their spiritual father. He's the apostle. They're they're dear to him as children. But in this instance, he's claiming them as God's children. Look again at verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Little children who have been born of Him practice 
righteousness. He said, look, to be, to be born of God is, is to get a new birth. John wrote about that in John chapter 3, back in the Gospel accounts, and Nicodemus, right? What does, what does it mean to be born again? To, to be born of God? It's a, it's a start over. It's a, it's a recreation of yourself that God does in you. New birth. New identity as His own. And here's what he's simply saying about it. We'll, we'll flesh that out more in the coming weeks. But he's saying, if, if you're a child of God, if you have that new birth and that new identity because of Christ, you're going to look like your Father. Children resemble their Father. You're nodding your heads. You're nodding your heads, a lot of you, I know for two reasons. One is you know theologically that's true. We ought to look like the Father. Second is you're probably thinking about your own dad. And maybe some of you, especially as you're getting a little bit older, are going, yeah, I'm seeing my dad in myself a lot more than I, than I realized. Or maybe it's your mom that you're seeing in yourself, right? You, you're going to look like your parents. I was struck by this a couple years ago. I, I, um, I was back uh, visiting Arizona. I went to Arizona State University. Uh, so I thought I'd go back and walk the campus. And it was, I think it was a Sunday evening. I'm walking the campus. It was probably spring break, too, because there was nobody there. Uh, I'm walking all by myself. And, and the, only, the only two people I can see in, in my vicinity at all were way off in the distance, probably about 100 yards away. I could barely make it out. I, I could tell it was a man and a woman, but that's all I could tell. And as I'm walking, I hear this man from 100 yards away yell out, Bill Pinalto? What the heck? Who the heck recognizes me? First of all, from 100 yards away. And second of all, when I haven't been in this place for, for years. And I walk closer and closer. And, and sure enough, it turns out it's, it's one of my dearest friends. And I was like, how on earth did you recognize me? He said, you know what? I would recognize that gate, G-A-I-T, the way you walk. I'd recognize that anywhere. And the minute he said that, I thought, oh my goodness. The one thing, the one marker about my own father that I I always could recognize him from a great distance was was the way that he walked. (laughs) My dad had the most unique walk. He still does. There's something about that gate where when I see it, even from a distance, that's my dad. And this guy from a hundred yards away said, I knew who you, who you were because of the way you walked. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm becoming my father. <laughs> John's saying, look, that, that's, that's true. You, you, you become like, you should become like your parents. And, and especially in this regard, as, as, as the father, as our father is holy, that's his intention for us as his children, that we become like him in those things. So look, he's going to come back. And when he does, he's going to recognize you. And you're going to recognize him. Everybody's going to see it. You're going to react one of two ways. You're going to react like the one who sees that coming and, and it's familiar and it's welcome and it's, 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 that's my father. That's my older brother, Jesus, coming for me to take me to my father. You're going to have that joy or it's going to be the most horrific, scary moment you've ever experienced because it'll mean nothing but pure judgment. And John's, John's writing to us to say, I want you to have confidence. I want that day to be good for you. I want there to be hope for you in that day. 
And so he finishes here this thought in I think the first three verses of chapter 3, which is here's the hope of those who abide. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. There's that, there's that resemblance, right? He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. There's just there's three main points here that I think that he's getting at. And the first one is this. It says, he says, here's the hope for those who abide. Listen, God loves us. God loves you. And I, I love the way he says it here because he, he says uh, words that are familiar. See what kind of love the Father has. That, that what kind of is the same words being used in the Gospel accounts when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples are panicking, they think they're going to die, and Jesus just hushes the waves and the wind, and like that, everything goes calm, and they go, what kind of man is this? What kind of authority is this? And literally it means uh, sort of like, what world does this come from? This is otherworldly authority. This is otherworldly power. And so John is using that same word here to say, this is otherworldly love that God has for us. Do you know that? Are you abiding in the truth of the Gospel because you know that the love that God has for you is out of this world love? Previous generations would, would, would have called it this. They would have said, man, that is far out. I tried to find out what the current generation would say. I asked some teenagers and they said, they said, oh, it, that's lit. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But I think it's on the, it's on the right track, right? He's saying, look, this, this love that God has for us. <laughs> These teens dared me to say it too, Derek. Now I know why. This love that God has for us is a far out, otherworldly love that He would, He would call us His children. That is a remarkable thing. When we recognize that for what it is, it, think of it this way. The reaction of shame, the reaction of, of fall on us, mountains and rocks just fall on me, hide me from the wrath that's coming towards me. That's the reaction that every single human being ought to give. Right? That's the reaction. If, if I'm in my right mind and I recognize myself or what I really am and my, my real heart attitude towards a holy God, that's the reaction that I ought to give. But God loved me. He showed me my sin and He, he sent His Son to die for me that I could have my sin placed on Him. What love! demonstrated again in that while I was in rebellion to God, Christ died for me. That's out of this world love. Do you know that this morning? Listen, I know some of you came into church this morning on a, on a thread. Maybe it was hard for you to sing this morning because you thought about the sin in your life and, and you, you feel that shame of like, maybe if these walls could just fall on me this morning, God won't see me. Listen, there's no hope in that. 
The hope of the gospel is that, that God drew you here, that he would see you and remind you of this fact. He loves you. That's the hope of those who abide in Christ. God loves us and God calls us his children. I won't spend a whole lot of time on this because we're going to come back to it. Uh, I'm preaching at another church this afternoon and I'm preaching from Galatians chapter 3. Sherry brought up some of that passage in, when she was leading us in corporate prayer, but it's in that passage where we're told that we have been given the inheritance of the Son. And it's an amazing thing to be told. Jesus is the Son. He's because of His position as the Son of God and as because of His performance as the righteous Son of God, He's the only one worthy of the, the full inheritance of the Father. And yet we're told in Galatians that because we've been baptized with Christ, identified with Him, we now abide in Him, that full inheritance belongs to us. That's why it says here, you are now children. That's what it means. You have every right and privilege of a son as sons and daughters of God through Christ. And because of that, the Spirit in you can cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. That's the hope of those who abide in Christ. And then finally, this last great hope, which I love because we're being called here to, to, to righteousness. We're, we're, we're being called to examine our lives to see, is there a righteousness in me that demonstrates that God's work is effective in my life? That I, that I really am following Jesus? And, and there, there can be, if we slip into legalism, there can be this fear that if I have to somehow keep producing that righteousness for God to be pleased with me so that when he shows up I'm not going to be ashamed and and again we we can't think that way because the gospel doesn't tell us that the gospel says no god produces the righteousness in you and the great hope is that when he comes not shrinking back from him because you're you don't look anything like him you're going to those of you who are in christ you're going to be caught up with him and transformed in that moment to be everything that he is his work will be completed in you. What he began, he is faithful to complete. And on that day, those of us who are alive are going to see that transformation instantaneously. You will be just like Jesus. That's awesome. That's hope. And so simply he says this to end it out. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Now this almost sounds like a contradiction. <laughs> Wait, He's going to make us that pure. He's going to make us like Jesus. So then, John, why are you saying, so if your hope is in Him, purify yourself? Well, because there's this strange little concept called sanctification in which God is responsible for initiating and producing that change, but He's called us to walk in it. We've said this a million times and we'll keep saying it again because it's, it's straight out of the Bible. Become what you already are. Walk in the truth of the Gospel. You've been made righteous, so live that way. It's your assurance. It's your identity marker. It's, it's how you know. You couldn't do it if God hadn't begun this work in you, but He has. So walk in it. 
Purify yourself. Live righteously so that when He comes, you have that confidence that God has done something in me and I'm following Him. Praise God. You won't be ashamed. Amen? Father, thank You for the hope that we have in Christ. And we thank You that You're coming back. Lord, I I pray for everyone in this room that on that day, that would not be a day of, of shame, but a day of glory. A day of expectation to know Everything, every promise that we've believed in is, is finally coming to pass. We look forward to that day. Lord, I, I even pray, come Lord Jesus. Come today. But you've tarried for your own reasons. And one of those reasons that you've, you've told us in your word is because there's a fullness of time. There's a, there's a fullness of drawing in all whom you've called to yourself. And you, you're obviously not done with that yet. So Lord, I wonder, is there somebody in this room, are there multiple people in this room today that you have yet to to open their eyes to see that you're calling them? Perhaps today, Lord, perhaps even now would be the moment of salvation for them, that they would recognize that that there's a a shame and a fear and a right fear that comes by being judged by a holy God, but you've offered hope through the gospel of your Son. Jesus came, who took on our sin, he died to pay the penalty for it, and he rose again to conquer it. So may we all put our faith and hope and trust in Jesus for this salvation, and may we walk in the newness of life that you have brought about, having been born of God, being made children of God. May we live in ways that demonstrate that reality. And we thank you for our hope. Thank you for Jesus and his work. And again, come Lord Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen.